growing up reading, reading the Bible um, and just trying to make sense of what I was hearing in, in various churches and trying to figure out how to hold, hold the whole thing together. Um, that, that particular paradigm, which is derived from Paul, um, was really presented front and center. And I, I struggled to figure out how to reconcile that paradigm with sort of the rest of scripture in the sense of, you know, how do I reconcile that with the Old Testament? How do I reconcile that with, you know, even just the rest of the New Testament? And he was talking one bit about, is uh, translating faith of Christ and just saying, yeah, commentators don't, aren't sure exactly how to do this because it, the word, you know, pistis can mean either faith or faithfulness. And so they're not really sure. And I literally, I mean, my brain, it just melted and just came out my ears as I was trying to operate a motor vehicle. Because <laughs> for me, faith and faithfulness were opposites growing yeah. up. Those were... But it could be either one of those two things, exactly, right? <laughs> exactly. So those were the two opposite ends of the justification dichotomy. You are justified by faith, not faithfulness. You're justified by believing, not not doing. And here, Wright's telling me these are the exact same word. That simple question about one word led my guest today, Dr. Matthew J. Thomas, on a theological journey, a journey that took him all the way to Oxford to study with some of the most brilliant minds in theology today, people like Alistair McGrath. What he discovered in his research as he wrote his dissertation, which actually eventually became a book that Scott McKnight awarded as one of the best three theology books in 2018, is an absolute game changer in how we can potentially better understand the Apostle Paul and the rest of the Bible. Is it possible that the most common way we've understood this whole idea of grace versus the law, that that way has actually been a big misunderstanding? Matthew has a doctor of philosophy in theology from the University of Oxford and a master's from Regent College, as well as an undergraduate degree from Pepperdine University. He's taught at St. Patrick's Seminary, Franciscan University, and Regent College. I hope you enjoy the fun conversation I had today with Dr. Matthew J. Thomas. Joined today by my my guest, Dr. Matthew J. Thomas. I'm so honored to have Matthew on for a conversation. Matthew, thank you for for being with us today. Where where are you coming from? Where am I talking to you from? By the way, <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm in in Ohio right now at okay. uh, Franciscan University in a in a basement. All right. So. <laughs> Typical life of a theologian, right? Yeah. In a, in a basement surrounded by books. It even looks like possibly, you know, I don't think we're going to put up video of this on the YouTube. It'll usually just be audio only. But from my vantage point, it even looks like I see some VHS tapes on the yeah. back bookshelf. Is yeah, that correct? That's, that's right. So I'm actually a visiting scholar over here and we're staying in, uh, we're staying in somebody else's house. So I actually, I actually can't really lay claim to any of the possessions okay, here. Okay. So whatever it is that you see, however questionable it is. Um, so that f- that that free that free Willy two VHS back there, <laughs> that's not yours. No. Yeah. Okay. The autographed by Willie himself. Uh, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So, okay. So just to give everybody a little bit of introduction, you're, you're a scholar, a theologian with multiple theological degrees, including a, a PhD from Oxford, or they call it a D-Phil, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. Uh, so 
that's not necessarily something uh, you get new neighbors that move in next door. You start chatting with them about their career. I don't know too many people that bump into somebody at the grocery store or have a new neighbor and you start talking about their career and they go, yeah, you know, I'm a theologian with a PhD from Oxford. So what, what kind of what kind of experiences, childhood experiences or, or formative experiences led you down this path to choose this sort of career? Yeah, absolutely. So just so you know that, you know, I'm, I'm not the only potentially distinct one here. My wife thinks that um, I'm having a conversation with Paul the Enlightener right now. Um, <laughs> I'm trying awesome. to say what your name was. It's Enlightener. You know, yeah, that's that's pretty close. That's pretty close. She did a good job. Actually, that's uh, my uncle who is, you know, not really a theist of any kind, did some background digging into our Germanic ancestry. And that's what he actually told us our last name meant was light giver or enlightener or teacher. So yes, you can tell your wife, um, yeah, that sounds very uh, Tolkien-esque name. You but... were right. I was talking to Paul the Enlightener. <laughs> you come up with an enlightened countenance. Like Moses coming down from uh, the mountain, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so how did you get into this? No, I was just it, there's just something that sounds like totally not real about being on a podcast called Deep Talks with Paul the Enlightener. <laughs> if I had to make up like a fake a fake podcast scenario, like when I was, if I tell anybody later today what I was doing today, no one will believe me. <laughs> That's anyway, awesome. sorry. I'm totally. I'm changing. I'm changing the name now. I'm going to change it to Deep Talks with Paul the Enlightener. Yes. Just you know how much I appreciate this so far. Um, no, it's it's a great question. So I um I became a, a Christian uh, at a fairly young age, but wasn't from a Christian background originally, and it had a a pretty a pretty rough um, upbringing, and so. Uh, becoming a Christian. I mean, I was, I was like going to fourth grade at the time, but I, the, the gospel gave me something that I didn't have before. And really, uh, I think having had a lot of just, just dark, difficult, ex, you know, experiences in my, in my own background, um, it, I mean, I, it just really, it really jumped out and made, made a difference in my life and, and gave me something that I had, I had never had before. And so, um, from that point on, I was, you know, I was raised in a bunch of different evangelical contexts and, uh, I mean, all kinds of, all kinds of varieties of churches here, here and there. And, um, one of the things that if we're talking about, you know, how do you, how do you, you know, become, become a theologian kind of stuff like that, uh, I honestly, <laughs> I don't, I don't have, a, I don't have a super clear answer in the sense that, um, you know, when I was in, when I was in college, you know, I, I, I really felt a call towards, you know, towards ministry more, more than anything else. And just wanted to, wanted to be able to, uh, I mean, to, to serve more, more than anything. So, um, my background before I was doing any of this was actually working in inner city ministry, uh, working, working with kids. And, uh, so I was, uh, I was working in Oakland running an after school program, uh, and just, just loved it. Just absolutely thought it was the, thought it was the greatest thing. And, uh, I mean, still do. And if God, you know, calls us, calls us back and that kind of work, um, I mean, I'll, I'll be there in, the, in a heartbeat because I, I just love, love working in contexts like that. Um, so I was, I was doing that for a few years after college 
and um, had uh, basically we we ended up having a leadership change at the ministry I was working at that it was it was pretty clear at that point that I was going to be going into like a, a different direction from what we had been doing and so for me that was that was like a clear sign that okay maybe this is even though this is you know, this is the greatest thing that I've, I've been able to be a part of. Um, maybe this is time to step back and kind of figure out what I want to do. Uh, or if there's something else that, you know, I, sh- I should be doing. And I had had, you know, a number of theological questions growing up, um, a number of relating to kind of faith and works and the whole faith works paradigm and how that works in relation to justification stuff that for me, I had really struggled and wrestled with, um, you know, when I was, when I was, you know, junior high, high school, I was trying to figure out how does all this stuff make sense? And I Do you remember any of your questions at that point? Like, as you look back, yeah. what were the things that were troubling or, um, yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. So, um, for myself, I remember, um, I remember the way that the faith works paradigm was, was articulated was that, the um basically you kind of have faith on the one side which is like you know believing stuff and then you know works is kind of every everything else (laughs) whatever whatever you happen to do is is works and it was i mean basically you know it's i'm I'm sure you're you're familiar with context like this theologically where you kind of you know you pray the you pray the prayer you you have you know salvation at that point and you have the you know the guarantee of eternal life and so what you do thereafter doesn't actually doesn't actually make a, a difference in a substantive way as far as, you know, you know, what your right. eternal destiny is going to be, whatever happens to me. So and that's kind of the, that's sort of the way that the gospel is presented and under, understood. And so growing up, reading, reading the Bible um, and just trying to make sense of what I was hearing in, in various churches and trying to figure out how to hold, hold the whole thing together, um, that that particular paradigm, which is derived from Paul, um, was really presented front and center in the, uh, I mean, yeah, just, you know, kind of teaching, preaching kind of stuff like that evangelism. And I, I struggled to figure out how to reconcile that paradigm with sort of the rest of scripture in the sense of, you know, how do I reconcile that with the old Testament how do I reconcile that with, you know, even just the rest of the New Testament? So say like, like the Sermon on the Mount. Exactly. So say, so the kinds of things that Jesus is saying, how do I, how do I, how do I hold these things together? Or even, even what Paul himself is saying, like, even if you're just not, you know, don't worry about James or like that, just say in relation to Paul, there's all kinds of places in Paul I'd come across where it's like, gosh, it seems like Paul has this strong sense of, of accountability and the cons, you know, the consequences of what, you know, what, what we actually do with our lives. But, um, somehow, somehow, you know, none of that could, could really, could really make sense within the context of that. Um, yeah, of that, of that faith works dichotomy. And so, yeah, when you, can you talk for a second? Cause I, I, we do get, you know, this is, um, Probably the vast majority of people that tune in, listen to this podcast, I would say come from sort of some sort of church background, but there are people that jumped on, I, you know, one of the first few podcasts I did was actually exploring the theology of Jordan Peterson, which got a whole different sort of crowd of people yeah. just engaged with this stuff and are exploring um, maybe some of the more philosophical side of theology. And maybe for those that don't come from that context, uh, the shared context we have... Yeah. 
which seems to be like across evangelical traditions. I grew up in a really charismatic, in fact, by the 90s, it was almost pretty much full-on word of faith, prosperity gospel. And yet, Mm -hmm. even in a setting like that, which would have been radically different than the Baptist church, cessationist Baptist church down the road, Mm -hmm. in both contexts, this like law versus grace dichotomy was presented. And um, maybe could you like just in a sentence or two, from your perspective, what what is that paradigm? What is what is that evangelical law-grace paradigm understanding of Paul? Yeah, yeah. So the way that, I mean, from growing up, uh, you know, the way that I, I remember is that, you know, you are saved um, by faith, which is, you know, which is believing, you're just kind of making, making the profession of faith and not by works. So not by anything that you, that you do and the salvation that is, that is given or justification. Um, those terms, at least growing up for me, were always used pretty much interchangeably is something that is, is, is given with the profession of faith. So kind of Romans, you know, Romans 10, nine stuff. Uh, you know, if you believe in your heart that, the uh, road. Jesus, yeah, exactly. Uh, and, you know, confess with your mouth, Christ raising, sorry, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that, uh, God raised him from the dead. You'll, you'll be saved. Uh, the, it's kind of like, you sort of do that. That's yeah. the, that's the faith bit. Don't, uh, <laughs> if possible, take the verb do out of, uh, the my previous <laughs> sentence, because you can see logically there might be, uh, yeah. Is my profession not a doing? <laughs> anyway, don't, yeah. don't worry about that. Oh, don't worry about that. These are, these are the kinds of things that as a kid, I was just like, man, how do I figure this out again? Um, so, so you have on that side, you have the profession of faith. You have um, you know, confessing, you know, that, uh, that Jesus is Lord and, and believing this. And if you believe this, then you will, you will go to heaven and you will, you know, have eternal life and stuff. And works is pretty much anything else that isn't that. And so anything else that isn't, that isn't that profession of faith is in the works category. And it can neither add to nor subtract from the, you know, the gift that God has, has given you. Uh, in Christ, which um, there is, and I'm sure we'll get to this later. There, I, I think are, I think there's both things that are true and not entirely true in the way that 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 paradigm is presented. Um, what is the the positive? The positive, um, I think you'd say, piece of that is that it presents the gospel in a very easy to understand way where you can present it to a lot of people who might not have any kind of, you know, any kind of background in anything. And, um, and it, you know, there's, there's an attractive quality to it. And it, I think that if you were looking, you know, if you're just looking at, you know, in, in Christ's own life and the way that he goes and extends, you know, forgiveness and repentance to, to sinners and goes and calls them, there's something, there's something that I think is deeply resonant with what Christ does in his own life and ministry in that particular presentation. I think the difficulty is sort of everything that happens after that, <laughs> everything that happens after the profession of faith and trying to figure out how that relates to what you do in that, you know, initial profession. Um, that's, that's a bit that I think is, is challenging. And so, and this is a nuanced critique, like as you're saying, just so people are listening, misunderstanding, if they are possibly misunderstanding, it's not like a whole fledged, I'm suggesting, or I don't think you're suggesting in your book, the complete abandonment of that 
paradigm in its entirety, right? That, that um, it is by, is by grace through faith that we experience salvific union with Christ. But yet there are these, these you know, possible, uh, these areas where, uh, I guess, questions, like a kid's question emerges, right? right? A, a, a childlike question of, well, so does God really look at our neighbors who are maybe caring for the poor or something like that. And he, does he hate them? You know, is, is what they're doing worthless or now that you've entered into this, you know, I don't think anybody actually called it that until I got a little older and started getting into academic theology, but this salvific union with Christ, now that we've entered into it, mm. um, you know, is the only reason why, that act of serving the poor now good is because I said a prayer, mm. you know, uh, some mm. sort of uh, almost like a, I hate to call it this, but this is kind of what it felt like at times, like a, like a magic spell, a salvation mm. spell, right? I said these words in the right order with the right uh, intellectual assent to certain doctrines, yeah. and now I'm in, and now the stuff matters, but it, it only matters because I said the thing. And, and there's some practically as we start to like live out in the world particular ways it, i always felt like looking back that I, I wrestled with a certain sense of nihilism about doing anything right yeah. that like yeah. it, it doesn't really matter i also didn't know i didn't fully understand how there could be people out there that were doing things that were bearing fruit and in yeah. fact in a sense this is kind of like what Paul talked about in Romans 1, which almost seems like it it, it gets turned into the in, inverse, that mm. there were people that were non-Christians out there mm. that seemed to be living really righteous lives in the world, but I had to say that what they were doing was still like totally worthless. Mm. And, and it was really hard to make sense of that growing up as a kid. Was that the same for you as you... I, I, processed this and how it actually like applied to your daily life? No, I, yeah. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of that resonates with me. I, I just remember, um, and maybe I can try to like complete the, complete the story that I was, I was oh, telling sorry. before with this. No, it's, it's totally, it's totally fine. I, 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 yeah, I fall into digression like all over the place. Um, I do, I do remember for me that being, a, a difficulty trying to figure out how that made sense, but not, not just, not just purely at a rational level and saying, you know, how does this reflect, you know, a just God? Um, but also from, from a purely scriptural standpoint, trying to assess how does this go and how does this accurately represent the biblical witness? Um, and I, I really, I really struggle with that. And, you know, the way that you describe, you know, the kind of almost wrestling with a nihilism of sorts. Uh, for me, I know that this, this paradigm, which I, you know, I, I just, I couldn't really make sense of. Um, and when I, when I would try to, you know, explore and ask, ask questions, um, I, I usually wasn't able to get like good substantive answers that were really, really engaging with the meat of what I was trying to trying to get at. For me, it it really did serious damage to to my own faith when I was when I was in high school, and basically left me in a position where I was just like, okay, well, if I can do whatever I want to do, 
then I guess I'll just go do whatever I want to do. Yeah. And, and first, much more abounds, right? <laughs> I, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's kind of one of those things where it's like, Hey, I know, I know I'm probably not supposed to do this, but I am actually being told that, you know, this is like, this all still works fine, which I don't want to go. It's, it's, it's easy to go into blame. Um, it's easy to go in, into to blame one's own faults on, you know, an incomplete theology somewhere else or something, something else, something else yeah, tells yeah. you when you're, you're really, the victim of it. <laughs> yeah. When really it's like, look, I, yeah, I mean, my, my own heart has, you know, has sit within it and the enemy is going to take any, any opportunity that he can in any direction or any incomplete truth of any sort and try to use that to his advantage. But in my own life, it really, it really was a big deal where, um, you know, having a, um, you know, having a paradigm like that, which I couldn't make sense of, but if I was understanding it correctly, said, Hey, it really doesn't matter what you do from this point on that then, and if you're thinking, you know, a high school age, you know, guy, uh, who, yeah, I mean, has all right. kinds of things that they would like to do that would, you know, that are, uh, you could say inconsistent with what the law would say. Yeah, I don't think we have to be explicit in listing those things either, do we? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyway, so, uh, so when I was, yeah, I mean, I had a period in high school where, you know, I basically, uh, you know, I basically walked away from the faith, not in a, not in a formal sense, but I just, I just remember asking myself, like, can I, can I really believe this stuff? Like even, even with the background that I had and with recognizing in my own, what I couldn't, what I couldn't deny was God's work in my own life and how he had pulled me out of stuff that was, you know, that was really, really dark and difficult and put me into a different place. But I theologically trying to put all the pieces together, I really, really struggled to figure out how does this go and make, make any sense. So it's not just, not just in the practical application in your life, but it is true as you look at the scriptures, right? I, I guess for, I would say a couple of areas that I wrestled with was you, you hear the way that this dichotomy was presented and it almost made it seem as if what God had done in Israel in the Old Testament was just a, a massive negative object lesson. Like, I'm giving yeah. you guys this thing. You got no chance at it. And yeah. it's fine for us as readers, right? But you think about the, you know, however long that process was, that the law was in place. There was real people living and dying in that yeah. system of the law. And was that all just to trick them and it just yeah. so that we would be able to look back and go, yep, see, they couldn't do it. Yeah. Uh, and then reading the Sermon on the Mount too. And, and, and you read the gospels and you go, oh, okay. Well, is the Sermon on the Mount really just about me looking at and going, I can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And that's the point. Is that, is that really what Jesus was getting after? So yeah. I, I also saw these these, you know, these points of, I don't understand how this theological paradigm makes sense of these other significant sections of scripture and themes in the, in the yeah. scriptures. Yeah, no, absolutely. And for, for me, it's, it's kind of bringing it full circle. When I was working um, in, uh, in, in Oakland uh, for this, uh, for this ministry, Harbor House, um, which is, I mean, a great, great minister is I, part of what I was doing is I, I teach, uh, script, you know, a, a short thing on scripture at the beginning of each, uh, 
you know, kind of each, each afternoon for this after school program. So I just, you know, teach them one or two verses and which is great. And I, I mean, it's, it's the greatest experience. And I, I still, I mean, I'm still, still in touch with, uh, yeah, with, I mean, you know, young people from there on a daily basis. I just, it's just, just such a fantastic opportunity. But in the context of, of doing that, I recognize that, the the stuff that I was teaching from scripture, it, it it sat very uneasily with that faith works paradigm that I had, you know, that I had received when I was a kid and never really knew about what, you know, how how to make sense of it. And it was at about this time that I started, I can't remember how it was first uh first or not uh to to his work, but I, I first started getting into NT Wright's work and his kind of new perspective on Paul's stuff, where from him, his standpoint, what he, what he was saying is that the paradigm isn't a, it's not an absolute sort of belief versus action dichotomy that Paul is setting up. What he's setting up is faith in the fully orb sense, you know, having the kind of trust in God like Abraham had versus the works of the law, i.e. obeying the Mosaic law, which is the significance of which isn't you trying to, you know, earn a bunch of points before God. The question is, do you have to become part of the Jewish nation or not? And so for me, I, you know, I was, I, I can still remember this really vividly. I was driving into work and I was, uh, I was listening to, uh, I was listening to the Romans in a week class that he did at Regent college back in, boy, I want to say like the early nineties and like that it was a long, long time ago. And he was talking one bit about, uh, is translating faith of Christ and just saying, yeah, commentators don't, aren't sure exactly how to do this because it, the word, you know, pistis can mean either faith or faithfulness. And so they're not really sure. And I literally, I mean, my brain, it just melted and just came out my ears as I was trying to operate a motor vehicle. Because <laughs> for me, faith and faithfulness were opposites growing yeah. up. Those were... But it could be either one of those two things, Exactly. Right? <laughs> Exactly. So those are the two opposite ends of the justification dichotomy. You are justified by faith, not faithfulness. You're justified by believing, not not doing. And here, Wright's telling me these are the exact same word. That this is. <laughs> You're justified not by pistis, but pistis. It's like that's like this, there's no there's no basis for a dichotomy there. It doesn't make any, any sense. And so for for me, that got me into saying, well, what is actually what does pistis mean? What is this? And and just you know looking up and saying, you know, the word is you know is used to translate the you know words for faith, faithfulness, trust, fidelity, loyalty, belief. You get you get all of these, and you see, boy, that's that's a heck of a lot bigger thing. And you can say uh, that seems more active than passive, right? The traditional in a second, I'd love to kind of like spell out maybe um, help listeners maybe be able to pick out where this kind of normative evangelical interpretive lens comes from. But uh, it does seem like in that we'll call it because this is what it's been called in academic circles, even for people that aren't familiar with it, the the old perspective on Paul has been that faith is a passive reception, right? Mm-hmm. Even if you want to even call it a reception, you could go yeah. to the, um, you know, full-on uh, reformed, you know, to the to the, you know, Calvinist position of right. This is this is all got, uh, or maybe we should say monergist 
position, mm. right? Of this is all God's. There's no synergistic cooperation in this in mm. any way, shape, or form. This is all God's doing. Um, to at least moving on the sliding scale, maybe to saying this is some sort of passive reception of faith. But when you say words like loyalty, obedience, faithfulness, the, that that sounds a lot more synergistic than monergistic. Yeah, if you want to think of things in, in terms of those categories, then it, I mean, it's it, it certainly you certainly end up finding yourself in a place like that. And then you end up reading Paul where he talks about, you know, synerguntes, uh, you know, working together with, you know, with God, uh, which was what is in first Corinthians where he's talking about that. Uh, you read that and like, Oh, that's really, it's really interesting. Like this word is actually where that, you know, that, that Paul, Paul goes and uses, and I know right in his justification, but and else elsewhere, he basically, though it is a, um, though it, though it can be, um, a theologically fraught term, he really goes to some lengths to try to go and reclaim it in a positive way and just saying, look, this is a biblical, this is a biblical like verb that's here. And so if it's, you know, if it's good enough for Paul, it should be good enough, good enough for us. And I think, I think that what he, what he does with that is helpful. Um, so for, for me, you know, I was, I, I came across this when I was so, so working at that, at that ministry. And I just thought to myself, I've got to learn Greek. And so I just, I just bought, I bought a Greek Bible and started trying to read the thing. And I started, um, I mean, it got to the point where I was, I was teaching, you know, with, with the kids I was working with, I was, I was teaching them biblical Greek as well, which is one of those things that you, you might not think, you know, at the top of your head, Hey, inner city kids, inner city after really, school program, really <laughs> you did some biblical Greek. That's, that's the thing that's missing, but it was wild. Like they're, um, I mean, when you're working with, with kids in difficult situations, one of the things that's fantastic to see is how, how often they respond really well when you present them with a challenge. Yeah. And they, I mean, I had so many of them who just loved it, who, yeah, anyway, that's, that's, a, that's a different story. But um, that's, I, started, I just started to learn, to learn Greek, and I was like, if this, if this is what faith means, if this is what this verb means, then literally this whole paradigm that I have that I have been trying unsuccessfully to make sense of as pretty much as long as I've been a Christian, if it's not wrong, it's at least imprecise in the way that I have, I've conceived of it. And that for me was really, really helpful because I mean, as, you know, as, as I was saying, saying before, it was something that I could, I could never figure out how to read scripture in a, in a coherent way within that previous paradigm. And so then that, that led to me, um, going, to uh, to Regent College and working there, where I, I ended up, you know, working some more on this and wrote the first first paper on the early perspectives on works of the law, looking at the the way that you know, the early church kind of understood this dichotomy and how it functions, and then that turned into uh, you know being able. And was that with that DA Carson? Was that with? Don Carson that you no, wrote that? That's, under? So no, that okay. was so the first, the first paper I wrote was with, with J.I. Packer. Okay. Um, so that was the, so the whole, the whole thing got started as a, as a paper on justification. How did he feel about it? Yeah. So I, I had a couple of conversations with him um, in the lead up to the paper. And then in the, so, so after the paper, all I, the only feedback I got from him was, uh, was just the was just the the mark on the paper and the little comments that, that he wrote, which were really positive. He says, you know, 
uh, what was his comment? He said, this is a first class paper. I would argue against your conclusion based on the inner structure of Romans, but that is irrelevant here. And that was it. (laughs) So, um, so I think. And for people that are listening that aren't like in theological academia or theology, you know, theology nerds, um, you know, J.I. Packer's one of the foremost evangelical theologians and, um, of our day, right? Yeah, no, he is. And he's, he's a guy who I have, I have a lot of respect and appreciation for. Um, I actually, with, with the region, I do. Um, so I, I still, I still work with region. I do his distance education classes for him. Okay. Um, and so you'll, so you'll listen to, to his lectures and then I'll go and do that, you know, kind of the other, other, other parts of the course. And, um, he's, it's, it's an honor to be able to, 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 to do it for him because he's a guy who, though there's areas I would say, you know, of, of distinction, you know, between, between his theology and mine, you know, some of which I have, have to do, do with these areas. Um, he's still a guy who I have a tremendous amount of appreciation for, and, um, yeah, so are you thankful for that? Just as a quick side note, this is one of the reasons why, like I started this podcast was that my experience and, um, in seminary was like that with professors. I, I, I had written several papers where professors said, well, this isn't my perspective, but you, you did your, you did your research and you did your due diligence. And it was a place where, this like exchange, free exchange of ideas could happen. It was like, hey, you do your homework, you do your research, let's see what your conclusions are. And uh, I found that for a lot of people in church context, they don't have that experience in their daily church routines, right? And in their communities, uh, they might feel uh, afraid to ask you know, questions or to re-examine stuff, which is just, just a side note. This is one of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast. So, you know, Packer had this has this perspective, which is probably again like the more typical Protestant evangelical perspective, at least you know in in recent times. And is it fair to say that that old what we call the old perspective uh, that seems to be almost pretty universal in evangelical churches, many evangelical churches, at least in my experience, that's anecdotal. Mm. But uh, has has Paul interpreted primarily through the lens of Martin Luther and John Calvin? Is that mm. fair to say? Are they the biggest influences on how we read Paul, even if we're not Lutheran or Calvinist? I would say yes and no. I would say yes in a in a sort of um, in a sort of default sense, um, that is, I think usually if we're tracing the ideas back, they'll often have some rooting in, in either Luther or Calvin's theology. Um, but from a, when it comes to, you know, direct influence, um, I find, I find the, um, the, the actual amount of people who have either either read Luther or Calvin a whole lot right. tends to be tends to be That's fairly true. tends to be fairly small. And um, I mean, one of the things that one of the things that for me was striking in in writing this book was how when you get to their logic in relation to justification, you know, by faith versus works of the law, um, even where there's similarities between Luther and Calvin, that there's real areas of distinction as well. Um, and as far as how the logic goes and works, and those are the kinds of things that, 
they they do become clear to you when you read their uh, when they when you re- read their writings and which I mean, just most of us has, haven't really had the opportunity to you know to do right. and so I would say yes yes in a derivative sense um, but when you actually go and you you go directly to their writings. You find that they're a lot more interesting. Than, that's true. That's uh, than true. Then they're more that, recent interpreters, been. right? Yeah. 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 So, um, so yeah. what is, I mean, uh, you have this, you start your book, uh, Paul, and your book is entitled, uh, Paul's works of the law in the perspective of second century reception. You start your book with this quote from Calvin, which says, it's a matter of doubt, even among the learned, what the works of the law mean. From Calvin's commentary on Romans 1, while Calvin clearly expressed some doubt about what a phrase from Paul like works of the law meant, it certainly didn't keep him or his revolutionary predecessor, Martin Luther, from attempting to explain what it meant, did it? I mean, they still took they took a stab at it. Um, yeah. What was Luther and Calvin's understanding of works of the law, their understanding of this grace versus the works of the law? How did they come to their conclusions? Yeah. So um, for both Luther and Calvin, they identify the works of the law as anything that one can do in order to try to be justified before God. And so as far as the meaning, like what actual works they're talking about, well, they might say that Paul's initial inspiration for talking about these might be the ceremonies of the Jewish law. For Paul, they understand this as being a jumping off point to talking about the value of human actions in general. And so anything can then be a work of the law, anything that one tries to do. And the significance of any of these efforts is trying to be justified before God. You're trying to trying to earn merit. You're trying to make yourself right in God's eyes by the actions that you're that you're doing. And so um, Luther and Calvin are quite close to each other. Um, in the way that they understand both the meaning and, and significance of works of the law. Mm. Because I mean, if that is the case, right, um, it seems like their biggest concern then is, well, what difference does Christ make, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because if if it is by human effort, then uh, I mean, what's the cross and the resurrection yeah. all about? I mean, that, that, yeah. that does seem to drive their concern, which is a good concern, correct? Yeah, absolutely. How did, though, you know, when they were trying to do their due diligence and understanding, just as you did, you know, you learned Greek, Luther and Luther and Calvin know, know their Greek, but when they're trying to figure out what a phrase like works of the law meant, how did perhaps their process in their day and age maybe differ? Um, Did they lack access to perhaps some of the same things we might have access to today as far as church history to go back and go, hey, you know, because for both of them, right, the Protestant Reformation began with this sort of uh, drive to return to the sources, right? Mm. And we want to go back and we want to sift through all of the, you know, honestly, like the, some of the BS that has crept mm. into the church, and we want to get back to the apostolic witness. And, you know, especially a guy like Calvin, I, I, I've heard you talk about this before. It was like uh, Calvin tried to not, it seemed like he tried to not have any original thought of his own, right? Mm. It seems like he's always efforting to go mm. back in church history and to be able to name, you know, this is where we can see this 
Yeah. Um, how was that perhaps uh, a more strained process for them when it came to the works of the law from in their day and age from what we're able to do or you were able to do in your research? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So for for both of them, when it comes to the question of works of the law, neither of them on this particular issue are able to pull out um, Neither are able to pull out predecessors theologically for the ways that they they are interpreting this, and for this reason, you end up getting some of the I think I would say some of the strongest rejections of of tradition and of the you know the witness of the early church, for example, um, that you'll find in either Luther or Calvin's writings in relation to this particular uh, question. And I think that is um, because I think that they can recognize that what they're doing is at least in some ways distinct from what the early church is doing. And at least least what they know of that, that witness. And also I think probably polemically because those who are arguing against them, both from Catholic and Protestant sides of various, various sorts, are probably pulling out some of this material and saying, hey, this is, you know, this person says this, this person says this. And so the the question of, you know, uh, the, you know, Luther goes and, um, I mean, he has, he has that, 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 that quote that I, I pull out from. Yeah, I mean, it, they seem even different. Their, their perspectives on the value of tradition in this regard. Calvin yeah. seems a little bit more like epistemologically humble. It yeah. seems like with him, he's like, well, it's up in the air, but this is what I'll, I'll try to say and pinpoint. Luther yeah. seems to be like, well, I don't care what anybody had to say. They're wrong and I'm right. Do you, do you happen to have that quote in front of I do. I do have that quote. So Luther, you, you have this, um, you highlight this in your book. In somewhat abrasive fashion, he makes this statement that um, goes like this. Um, oh, what is it? Well, I have part of it. He essentially says that his understanding of the Apostle Paul is the only correct one, even if prior church fathers and theologians like, quote, you know, he names these guys specifically, Jerome, Augustine, Ambrose, Origen, had a different perspective. And then this is the direct quote that I, I have here um, from your book. From Luther, without such an understanding of these words, referring to his own, uh, and this is in his commentary on Romans, you will never understand this letter of St. Paul or any other book of Holy Scripture. Therefore, beware of all teachers who use these words in a different sense, no matter who they are, even Jerome, Augustine, Ambrose, Origen, and men like them or above them. And then he also writes um, elsewhere, we need not regret that the books of many fathers and councils have by God's grace disappeared. I can't imagine. Like, imagine if somebody today were to say something like that. Um, <laughs> I, I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to to be polemical, but it does. No, 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 it, no. He, and he's made many great contributions. Yeah, yeah, it, so many great, valuable contributions. But this is one area where, at least, yeah. his attitude. He could even be right. But the attitude of it doesn't matter what anybody in the past has to say. What I'm getting is correct. Right. I mean, it sounds like something Donald Trump would say, uh, for, for better or worse, wherever right, you align right, politically. Right. It, um, yeah, it does. It does sound like uh, some something that you could imagine imagine him, you know, him, him saying. Um, 
the uh, so so you so you have that in in this issue, and it's not you know Luther goes goes back and forth in some ways because there's there's a number of areas in which Luther will be deeply traditional in his theology, and he'll you know appeal to these you know these these same figures, and so um and so even you know so Jerome for instance who he goes and uh, he'll 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 dismiss. Uh, quite colorfully, you know, in certain certain areas, when it comes to uh, you know the question of the the canon, for example, um, you know he'll appeal to Jerome as his authority and say, "Hey, Jerome was the one who really understood this stuff. He was the one who really, he really had it." Um, but you do find that kind of attitude, um, you could say, a more free attitude towards dismissing the tradition in in Luther. Um, with Calvin, I think that there is. You do find more reticence, I would say, to, to, to do this, but it's something that when he is convinced that the tradition, even if it is, you know, a, a well-attested tradition, has just has something wrong, he, he's not going to go and place himself un, underneath that. And so when it comes to this particular question, he, he goes and identifies, I believe it's um, Chrysostom, Jerome, and Origen as holding to, you know, what I call the, you know, the early perspective on works of the law, which identifies it specifically as the Mosaic law. And then, you know, within those sees the, the points in conflict that Paul is engaging as being, you know, circumcision, the Sabbath food laws, the things that identify you with the Jewish people. That the thing I call the early perspective, he goes and uh, he, he, he recognizes that he recognizes that, yes, there's an interpretive tradition like this. And he, he dismisses that and says, no, I think that's wrong. And then he goes and he takes Augustine's understanding, which is, um, is, is you, you can tell that Augustine's conception is developed in a different theological and even polemical context, because this is what the way that articulate uh, that Augustine uh, articulates it in uh, in debate with the, the Pelagians. Uh, so when he's arguing against the Pelagians, he will interpret works of the law as any works that are done apart from God's grace. So anything that's not empowered by God's grace he will go and say this can this can fit the works of the law category. The other side of that are works empowered by God's grace, and from Augustine's standpoint, works that are empowered by God's grace do actually do actually justify. Um, and there's, I mean, there's you know a whole system of merit that's then theologically you know built on top of uh, of of that. And Calvin goes and, re- and rejects that view as well, um, and saying that you know works even. You know, even with with faith, works that are empowered by God's grace, they themselves don't don't justify either. And so it's it's one of those areas where um, both both Luther and Calvin, when you're reading their writings, they I think you can say that they find themselves more out on a limb here um, than they than they than they might in in some other areas. Um, and if there is a if there's a contribution that you know that I, I hope my my study might be able to offer. It's it's taking those those very earliest sources that were closest to Paul historically and saying like there are there are historical links um, to the, the the persons and places and events that Scripture attests to that these early figures held that are they they're better than any sort of historical 
you know, things that we can reconstruct on our own. And so for, for Luther and Calvin, they, they both go and identify origin as, you know, the source of the, of the errors when it comes to this particular question. Um, cause that was the earliest thing that they really had, you know, had available. And that was the earliest Romans commentary that was, that was there, which was written about 240. What I'm doing is I'm, I'm taking basically everything written in the first, the first two centuries closest to Paul and saying, how, how would this as a historical witness to what Paul was and his opponents were talking about, how would this go and influence the way that we understand what what this is actually about? Um, how can right. this you aid? So, your book isn't really intended to say, it's it's really an, an excellent, amazing piece of scholarship, um, but you didn't set out to write it to settle some debate between this old perspective, the Luther and Calvin perspective, and, you know, maybe what's been called the new perspective, like the N.T. Wright, um, who else, uh, James Dunn, is that, is he also in the new perspective yeah. as well, yeah. right? Um, yeah. You weren't out to settle that debate, but just simply go back to these early sources. And don't we also, too, have a problem where, you know, Luther and Calvin may not have had access to the uh, to the same extent to the people yeah. like like Justin Martyr for example yeah exactly exactly so that is um that's one of the things that in in researching and writing for this project um you know like, like I said it is the, the earliest Romans commentary that you know they have access to is 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 origins which they disagree with both fundamentally and or and yeah in, in a number of fundamental areas but the tradition prior to that, uh, they they both lack access to in this period, and so um, there is there's some there's some engagement that uh, that Calvin has with Irenaeus with against heresies, uh, which uh, takes place around the middle of his, of his own write, writing career. But prior to that, this is material that just doesn't exist in any kind of reliable uh, yeah, reliable edition. I think that you had a mix of the of the authentic letters of Ignatius of Antioch plus the spurious letters of, of Ignatius. Right. Um, cause I know that Calvin goes in and attests to those and just sees them all as high, highly unlikely. Um, but just in general, it's, it's, there's not, there's not a whole lot that's there that they've really got, got access to. And, but, and why should Christians care to access those things? I, I mean, you, you make a, an excellent case for why, in the beginning of your book and as you lay out your, your methodology and, um, and, and why you think returning to these early sources are important. Can you lay out for people why even, you know, especially those that are, again, like you know, in this Protestant evangelical tradition, which is really like sola scripture, sola scripture. Yeah. Um, why, why should we consult, especially consult these, these early sources in the first two centuries? I mean, you really, I guess, technically start at the, maybe the tail end of the first century in your book, yeah. but it's primarily focused in the second century, you know, the, the first hundred years after, um, you know, the, the, the birth of the church. Why is looking at that stuff important? Yeah. So I found for myself, um, when I was thinking about questions you know, questions of authority in relation to my own Christian belief and practice. Um, I recognize that when it came to the text that I, you know, that I have in front of me, when I come to the, the Bible that's actually there, I say, what is, what is the authority 
that you know I that I receive this by kind of where does this where does this, where does this come from and so whether that's the questions of you know authorship so does this person actually is this actually a Pauline epistle here is it not a Pauline epistle when it came to the text itself is this a reliable text is it not a reliable text when it comes to questions of you know the the actual selection of books should this book be here should some other book actually be here should this you know should you get you get rid of half of them whatever happens to be um, seeing that in my my own faith that the grounds upon upon which these this stood was the testimony of the early church so the the authenticity the actual preservation you know of the text itself um so i i recognize that i was already implicitly record you know having a recognition of god's god's action through the early church when someone um, says sola scripture, they're actually affirming the spirit's activity in the church at least some point, exactly, right? In history, exactly, exactly. So you're you're affirming God's not just activity, but God's normative activity through the early church, in the sense that this is meant to be binding for us as later believers. We're not meant to be able to just sort of get, you know, get rid of things in scripture that we don't like that they happen to, you know, that, Boy, you know, that would make things a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we're, that. That, that's that we're not, that we're not, we're not allowed to. So I, I recognize in thinking about this on my own, that I, that logically I already, I already, I already granted a degree of authority to the early church in the way that, and you can go, you can draw that line wherever you want to, as far as, you know, how, how far you go and hold this. But for me, the, I guess you could say the, the Mormon theory of history never held a great deal of appeal for me. The idea that, man, or as soon as the last apostle is gone, everything is just bad and dark until pick a date until, you know, 18, whatever, 15, whenever, or whatever it happens, happens to be. Because I, again, I also recognize that the only reason I actually have a Bible is because of the blood of the martyrs of the church. It's yeah. only because of their fidelity and in not handing the scriptures over to the authorities. And it's only because by the testimony of the spirit inside them that, you know, the, the whole Roman empire was, was converted. It's only because of that, that I even know of something called Christianity. Um, well, you just threw out a word, you just threw out a word martyr, <laughs> which, you know, and this is part of, uh, you know, we celebrate, uh, we always celebrated in any sort of evangelical church that I've been in or worked in, mm. you celebrate the witness of martyrs throughout church history and around the globe, right? You get these stories, you hear these stories and... Well, I mean, ju so Justin uh, Martyrs itself, I mean, he, he gets that as, you know, he gets, he gets, he gets martyr added on as a, as a later, yeah, as a later thing, yeah. because he is, he is the martyr, he's, he's, you know, he's a witness that's there, but you can... Uh, you can, yeah. I think it's easy to see how, with a with a, a background like that, coming across somebody like Justin Martyr, somebody who you know not only is is close to the to the apostles, but who um, who lives the teachings of the gospel um, to the point that he is, you know, he's he's put to death for it um, for his fidelity, you know, to the you know the apostolic witness and doctrine. For me, you know, coming across something like that, I, I just said, 
you know, I, I want, I want to know how they under understand these, these kinds of things. And I want to be able to learn, you know, learn from them. Um, not that you go and you take these as authorities who in any way right. supersede right. what, you know, okay. what the apostles or Christ are teaching or anything like that. But, as but they're speaking the language like that, like yeah. Greek is their native yeah. written tongue or written tongue. That might be an oxymoron, right? It's, it's, <laughs> it's much more native to them than it is to you learning it by yourself with, uh, whatever software you started off with, or, uh, you know, we get to the, uh, reformation period, right? This is, and we're within what a generation or two of the apostolic witness uh, that, shouldn't that carry some merit or maybe perhaps even stronger weight for us to go and be like, these guys had interactions with maybe not themselves directly, right? I mean, a guy like Justin Martyr probably didn't have any firsthand interaction with any apostle, right? Right. But they're within a generation or two, and uh, this is the language they speak. I mean, we should probably take some time to listen to them, right? Yeah, no, I, I think that there are distinct, and I mean, I lay, I lay some of this out in methodology as well, but yeah, I mean, I think that there are distinct grounds that are there, which for me, you know, having, having an evangelical, you know, background, I, I already had, um, I was already disposed towards trusting these sources elsewhere. And so, and appealing to them as, you know, as authorities elsewhere. So for instance, you know, how do you know that this gospel is written by Matthew or something like that? How do you right. know these, these, right. these kinds yeah, of things are, true. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm already used to going and appealing to these, not, not as primary authorities, but as secondary interpretive authorities and saying, no, this is like, you know, this is good historical data. If it's like already in the second century, you see this is clear, then, you know, that should, that should really mean something for you. You should only, you should only contradict that if there's some, some real smoking gun you've got from, you know, from, from somewhere else. So I was, you know, already used to going and, you know, appealing. So that's, that's part of why for, you know, for me, for this project, um, you know, part of, part of my hope with this is that I recognize my own background that these from an authoritative standpoint, there's a lot that is shared here among different, different kinds of people among, you know, with different traditions. And that can actually, that can actually extend even, you know, to people who don't necessarily, you know, even, even hold to the faith in some kind of, you know, believing way and just say, Hey, historically what's actually happening here, both both for those, for those who, you know, might not necessarily have a, uh, I guess you could say maybe, maybe not have, you know, a real like ecclesiology or anything like that, but still recognize, Hey, the early church is important. You know, the church of the martyrs is really significant and the stuff that's happening in the second century, as far as preserving, you know, apostolic, you know, tradition is valuable and we want to appeal to it elsewhere. It's one of those things where I recognize that it's, it's material that I think is significant for a lot of different people for different standpoint. And so, part of me wanting to do this project is saying, Hey, can this go and help people on both sides of, you know, this kind of old perspective, new perspective divide, um, you know, whether Protestant, non-Protestant, whatever, whatever you know, ha- happens to be, can, um, you know, can, can I go, go and make this material accessible for them? Well, and that's and, something you've done. I mean, you've gone through, this is a, just from a scholarship standpoint, you went through, uh, essentially every accessible work that we have today from that end of first century, second century period. And you combed through that for every single reference to works of the law. Even if it wasn't a direct reference, you were looking for things that might be inferences at that, correct? I mean, 
that 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 was that was your research. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I've I've tried to I mean, I've tried to be as absolutely comprehensive, you know, as as possible. And and so and there's there's just to give you a little introduction to the methodology of it. I there's a prioritization prioritization. That's probably a word of. Uh, of of the data that I, that I come across within within this this study, and so uh, I, I put in three sources, and then I kind of have an unclassed category at the end. The category A sources are sources that are they're directly engaging with verses that um, where Paul is talking about worse of the law, and so. Um, so you know whether it's you know Romans three twenty whatever it happens to be, but they're they're engaging directly with with that. And there's there's two there. There's Justin Martyr and there's Aaron Hess. Um, the category category B source I say is you know supporting evidence. If A is direct evidence, B is supporting evidence, where it doesn't necessarily have the phrase works of the law itself, but it has similar discussion between Jews and Christians that are either about you know works law anything you know anything related related to that, and they sh- even if it doesn't have the specific phrase, right? Exactly. So exactly. like uh, Justin Martyr with um, Trifo, right? So Justin, Justin we have in, in category A because he's directly drawing upon verses where he's, where he uses gotcha. it. Okay. Category B would be like something like Ignatius where you have, you have, you have debates between he, I guess debates the wrong word because we only have one, one piece of it. But you have him writing against Judaizers who seem to be very similar to, you know, Paul's opponents in Galatians. And we also have, you know, evidence of his use of Romans and Galatians as well. He just doesn't seem to be citing directly, you know, Romans, you know, 320, whatever it happens to be. And so that would be a support, supporting evidence where it shows clear influence from either Romans or Galatians or both and similar discussions to Paul's own in, Rom- in Romans and Galatians without necessarily giving a direct reference to the verse itself, which, I mean, Ignatius, you know, he's, he's en route to his martyrdom in Rome. He, he might not have his set of scrolls available to be able to, you know, cite, cite chapter and verse. He's open up Bible gateway. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, uh, so that's, that's category B. Category C is circumstantial evidence where it, you have sources where you're not sure whether or not they're influenced by Paul. And if so whether there's, you know, what was, it's, it's sufficiently strong to identify him as the source theologically of what they're saying. Um, but you do have similar discussions between, you know, Jews, Jews, and, Jews and Christians over either, you know, works or the law. And there is, if, if what Paul is, you know, one of the things that's fascinating about, you know, Paul's discussion about works of the law, when he's saying being justified by faith apart from works of the law, he, he doesn't define his terms. Uh, it is, it's never it's never thrown out there, right. and it seems to be in both instances, both in, in Galatians and Romans, it seems to be something that is a broader category that exists outside of the context of his own his own writings. Without defining it, it's assumed that the people that he's writing to know what he's talking about. Exactly, right? exactly. And this is especially the case in Romans, where he's never been he's never been there. He's never been to this congregation. He doesn't actually he doesn't have firsthand knowledge of people, but he can still appeal to works of the law. As a as is basically common coinage, and so if that is the case that it is that it is common coinage, then this circumstantial evidence, where even if you're not sure how influenced by Paul it might be, it can be the kind of thing where they're speaking the same the same language. Uh, and then I have a, a you know a final category which is unclassed sources, which is fragments of different things we have. We can't say for sure how it relates to Paul exactly, but it at least it's it's at least significant enough in that it has similar material that you want to 
you know, you want to have it for the sake of being being thorough. Boy, it's just a brilliant, brilliant piece of scholarship, Matthew. You should be really proud because you lay this all out. And again, you're you're not necessarily laying it out as um, to settle a theological argument, but this is more as almost like a his, church historian mm-hmm. uh, saying, here are the perspectives. And people can see those perspectives. You lay it out really well. It's logical. It's cohesive. These categories are actually really helpful. A wonderful way. I would have never thought of doing that. I would have said, well, you know, here's Jerome's perspective and just, bah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> here's 40 pages <laughs> on that. But you, you lay it out out in such a, a, a logical, uh, cohesive way that people can look at it, and then they can then summarize if they were to try to, to say in the second century, the perspective on Paul's phrase, the works of the law means this, well, they can come to that own, their own conclusion, right? From looking at all the evidence. Um, if we were to try to do that, and it's not that they're univocal, uh, you know, uh, across the board, but if we were to try to do that and say, you know, among the, the early church in the, the, the first two centuries, their perspective on what works of the law meant means what? Yeah. So we can look at it. So we can say first, the first, with what works of the law mean, we can, we can look at that as we were before in terms of meaning and significance. And then we can, we can, we can talk also, because I think it's theologically, it, it this is where you get into the really interesting stuff is when you say, what's the problem with them? Why are they, why are they opposed? So with, 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 with your question, what does works of the law mean? And, you know, and, uh, in the perspective of, you know, of the early church, the meaning, you know, the actual, what works of what law are we talking about refers to the Mosaic law and it zeroes in on the legislation that is given, you know, at Sinai, after after the golden calf incident so which then builds and builds and builds you know kind of kind of through, throughout and uh, so that's the particular legislation that's identified as this is what we're talking about this is the actual law that's here when you say law to a jew this is what this is what they're, what they're thinking about and then within those the specific works that recur our circumcision, Sabbath, food laws are, are really the, the main ones that are there. You'll also get things like sacrifices um, and, you know, a focus on the temple kind of things, things, things like that will, will, be, will be mentioned as well. Um, so th- those are the, those are the kind of, kinds of things that, that continue to recur in these debates. The second question, so if that's the, what, what's the actual, what works, what law are we talking about? That would be the first bit. What is practicing them signify? What are you doing when you do these works of the law? The witness of the early church is that practicing these things makes you part of the Jewish nation. Um, it places you as part of the Jewish people. Um, and so it is both, it's, it's, it is the, the way of life. It's the, it's the religion. It is the nationality. It's all of these, all of these things. And it's simultaneously a move of identification with the old covenant. And so it has, 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 has both of those things as, as part of it. So if you are, you know, if you're becoming, you know, if you, if you, if you, you know, getting circumcised and, you know, in the second century, you aren't trying to earn merit with God on an individualistic basis. You're not trying to, it, that's just not the way it works. If you do that, you're, you're becoming part of the Jewish nation and the logic behind doing that is that the, the Jews are God's chosen people. Uh, this is, um, if, if, 
if the Jews are, you know, the, the, the means by which God is saving the world, then you have to go and, you know, become part of this nation. It's, it's tied, tied into it. So that's, that's the significance of practicing these works from the standpoint of the other church. If you're, so that answers the questions you, that you asked. Yep. To answer the yep. question that you didn't ask, but which is, I think is, I think is really interesting. Um, why? What's what's the why, are, why? What's the objection here? Why? Why do we not observe the the works of the law? Um, from the standpoint of early Christianity, and this is, I mean, this is a lot of synthesis that goes goes into this. Um, there's there's five main reasons that I came across that just recur over and over in these sources. And there's more than, than just these, but these I would, I would say are the five most consistent ones. The first is the, you know, as far as why do we not obey the, the works of the Mosaic law? The first reason is the law of Christ within the covenant that Christ brings. If he has actually instituted the new covenant, then he also brings the new law. The law, law and covenant go together. Um, and so if, you know, it, it just doesn't make any sense to go and say that, yeah, we brought this new covenant, but we got this old law sticking around that's still in effect somehow. No, if it's really the role, right, that Matthew focuses on in Matthew's Gospels. Jesus as the new lawgiver, hence the yeah. Sermon on the Mount, right? There's exactly. this intentional connection between Christ presents us, uh, Christ is the new lawgiver. He's the, uh, yeah. the authoritative teacher. Yeah, which then ties in with, so in Matthew 16, with what's said to Peter in relation to binding and loosing, and then what's then said in Matthew 18 to the rest of the disciples with binding and loosing, and then what you see, because I mean, from, you know, in, in rabbinic, you know, parlance, that is in relation to, you know, what's prohibited and, and you know, not prohibited, what's, what's allowed in actual religious law for a community. That's just the way, that's what binding and loosing means there. And so when you see then in Acts 15, you know, Acts 15 in the Council of Jerusalem, this is what, this is what binding and loosing does. This is the, it is the, the legislation of Christ. It is the maintenance of, you know, of, of, of Christ's law. And that's what, wow. that's what, that's what, the, that's what the apostles do. So, so, so you have that as, as the first category. And that's like, that's, I mean, that's plain as day for the early, for the early Christians. Why do we not obey the Mosaic law? Because of the law of Christ. Like he is, he is the prophet like Moses. If he is actually the prophet like Moses, well, then he's going to do what Moses did. He's going to go and give the new law for us, which is both the teachings and precepts and ordinances that Christ gives and also the grace that Christ confers in order to actually be able to obey those things. It's also the, the grace of the Holy Spirit that's, that's written in our hearts. So that kind of gets into category four, but that's so that 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 new law is the, the number one thing, which for me, that was like I was knocked over the head with that because oh you goodness. just find it everywhere. I'd never heard you do. that as a reason. You do, and it makes that way of seeing it makes far more sense of the entire biblical narrative. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Because again, if he is the prophet like Moses, that's what Moses did. That's what it means to be a prophet, prophet like Moses. If he, if he actually fulfills, you know, Deuteronomy 18, which is, you know, the first, you know, the first sermon that, that, that Peter goes and gives in Acts, that's what he's saying is that he, he is the promised prophet like Moses. He is the, the true Joshua. So, uh, um, and then we, it seems like if we also throw in this rich pneumatology too, that, yeah. um, one of the questions I was going to ask you is, you know, if you got, you know, Justin Martyr, Luther, Calvin, N.T. Wright, 
together at a bar after a few pints. I mean, what, what do they all agree on? It seems yeah. like for both Luther and Calvin, there's this concern with legalism, right? It's it's yeah. the concern that I am able to earn right standing with God in an individual basis focused on individual salvation. It doesn't seem like the early church fathers, especially as we read Paul through that lens, that they're far more concerned with this more pressing issue in their community, right? Uh, that has to do with ethnic inclusion or vocational inclusion into the people of God through these specific mark markers. But for both of them, right, there's this, uh, they would both affirm um, the fruits of the Spirit, the 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 good deeds, the, the ability to follow the law of Christ comes out of union with him, right? Mm, I mean, that's a necessary precondition. We get the empowerment of the spirit. So it's not this legalism. It's also not, um, what, you know, it might be a sort of middle ground. That's a, a dangerous, gross hybrid of going, well, I'm not earning my salvation, but yet uh, all I do is now thank Christ for the work that he did in my own strength to try to go out and, uh, you know, follow the new law, Mm. It's this third way of him in me doing it in the world, right? Yeah, and that's I, the evidence that we see. Yeah. So, I yeah. you know maybe I answer. I mean to answer the question for you, but I, I'm really curious as to whether or not if we were to get. You've talked about the meaning, but we get to the larger, perhaps theological principle. Is there actually, perhaps, a degree in which you take Irenaeus, Justin Martyr? Luther, Calvin, N.T. Wright, and they're all at a pub somewhere, and you're asking them, well, what do you guys actually agree on? What would you say? Is there anything that they would agree on in this? (laughs) That's a a great question. Um, Let me me, me finish the train of thought from the last one. Yeah, sorry. Otherwise, no, no, because it's a great question. I I just want to grab that one. Yeah. Um, But if I I finish the other thought, I think it will help to go— and to, to answer this one. So if the first, if the first reason for, you know, not obeying the law is the law of Christ, second one would be, you know, the prophetic witness of scripture that, you know, the old Testament goes and says, Hey, there's going to be a new covenant. These, these things are going to come to an end. This is what it's going to be in the future. It's going to be like this. So you find, and you find the early Christians appealing to that all over the place. Um, third is the universal nature of the new covenant that's meant for all nations. It's not just meant for Jews. It's prophesied over and over and over throughout scripture. This is going to be a blessing that is for all nations. Well, if it's a blessing for all nations, then becoming a Jew by being circumcised, that just makes it a blessing for one nation. (laughs) That that just goes and that just says, no, the the prophecy was wrong. It's only, it's only for this one group of people. Uh, So that would be your third reason. Fourth reason is the transformation that God goes and affects through the spirit in the new covenant so that the laws that were given to hard-hearted Israel are no, no longer necessary. So you think like, you know, Matthew 19, this is, I mean, you find this all over the place in early church, um, you know, where, where Christ goes and, and says, you know, the, you know, in relation to, you know, to divorce, why, you know, wait, Moses said we could divorce. What do you say? And Jesus says, it's, it's because of the hard hardness of your hearts that he said this. You find that all over the place with the Mosaic legislation, that the reason that the Mosaic legislation looks like it does and does what it does is because of the hardness of the people's hearts when they had come out from Egypt. It's, it is a legislation that is adapted to their condition. Well, what happens if 
God goes and changes that condition. What happens if he goes and changes our hearts? Like he wow. says, you know, in, in you know, Deuteronomy 30 and, you know, in Jeremiah 31, what if he actually goes and circumcises your heart? What if he actually goes and gives you a new heart? He removes kind of the heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. Well, that means that he is going to go and give you precepts in accordance with the new condition that he will go and give you, which is, you know, Irenaeus jumps on this with, you know, the Sermon on the Mountain and says, yeah, Jesus is going and intensifying. He's not, you know, this isn't saying, hey, you're not like, you know, you, you can't go and do enough works that are happening. That's, that's the, way, the way the logic works. It's that Moses gave you this in accordance with the hardness of your heart. And he's, Jesus has now gone and fixed your heart. He's done this thing, giving you a new heart, like the you know prophets have talked about, and so that's why it's not just hey, don't commit adultery. It's don't even look at a woman like wow. this way. Don't don't even don't even think about it. Don't even commit adultery in your heart. Not only that's only intelligible because Christ actually goes and gives you a new heart so that you can do you can do this. Uh, yeah. it's, that's which wasn't heart. which wasn't available to you before the cross. That's the change, yeah. right? As you had, yeah. you maybe had temporary outpourings of God's anointing. You had theophanies. You had uh, you know God's presence in a fire or in the the cloud with Israel in the wilderness, but you didn't have indwelling. Yeah, no, you didn't absolutely. have you, you didn't have like ontological union as a possibility. Yeah, there's there's a principle in relationships which I think holds with our with divine relationships as well that reconciliation produces intimacy. Reconciliation allows for intimacy. When you have reconciliation, when you have a ministry of atonement and reconciliation, the closeness with God then that goes and makes possible is I mean, that's the story of Christianity. <laughs> that's wow. that's that's the whole book of Acts there. Um, and so then so that's 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 category four. And the, the fifth category is looking at the patriarchs. And so looking at Abraham and the righteous patriarchs and saying, look, Abraham justified before Moses, you know, was you know was a gleam in his in his mother's eye. You know, he was uh, you know he was he was justified before all this. And so that goes and shows that justification cannot be contingent on obeying the Mosaic law. And so that's, you find that, which is, I mean, you find that in Paul, but you find that all over in the early church as well. So that's answer, answering the other question. If you're saying, hey, what, what would, um, you know, if you get these characters. <laughs> well, first of all, I'm so glad you went back to answering, going back to points four and five there. I just wanted to hang out the bar with Luther and Calvin. <laughs> I'm so glad you didn't let me stay there. Because I'm ready to have an altar call after, after hearing that biblical theology laid out. It's amazing. That's like the good news. I'm just, I mean, I'm just, it's just, it's just patristic stuff. You know, it's just, yeah. it's just what the early church goes and teaches. And you get, I mean, for at least this is my experience is going and getting a hold of it. It's just like, gosh, this just, you feel like it takes all of the right bits of all the theological perspectives that you've come across. And it just it it has them all there. Yeah. It's it's got it's got has all of, all of that stuff there before it's gotten kind of you know fragmented and shattered and divided between one group against another group against another group. It goes and um, you know I, I try to bring this out in the book that though you know these early sources are they definitely are closer to what the new perspective is saying than the old perspective in a lot of ways. The you know the anthropological reasoning. For you know that that, that you know that, that that you find, which the old perspective folks do want to get on, um, and say you know that there's a problem with humanity 
that's not just, you know, a division between Jew and Gentile. There's a, there's a bigger problem in that. And that's true, though, right? though the early the early sources don't articulate it the same way that, you know, that Luther and Calvin would, they would still go and say, yes, like that is correct. And if you want to reduce works of the law to just, Hey, this happens to, um, you know, this happens to, to divide Jew from Gentile and we shouldn't have division. We all, we shall be in unity and hold hands. And that's the problem with works of the law. That doesn't get at the whole issue either. It doesn't, it doesn't get the whole thing. The whole problem is that there. Like there is an actual problem with humanity, which the Torah doesn't solve. And the whole history of Israel just shows the Torah didn't solve it. You know, that's kind of Romans one, one, two, three. If you, if you just have the Torah, if you just have the law, does this go and answer it? Does this, does this solve the sin of Adam? Does this answer the question? And the history of the Old Testament is the answer. No, it doesn't, it doesn't do it. There's no need for exile. There's no need for any of this stuff. Um, if just having the law was, was enough, you know, in and of itself, uh, there is, there is a deeper issue that's there that only Christ can go and fix by, you know, by actually giving a new heart, by, by doing the things that, you know, that the old covenant prophesied would, would happen. So, um, so if you're saying, Hey, what, what would they agree on? Um, there is, I think you can say there's at least points of agreement between the early church and between Luther, you know, and, and, and Calvin when it comes to that. And I, and, and that, that also holds with, that also holds with figures like, right. I mean, one of the things that I think is good about Wright is that he, even though he's probably the one who's found himself in most polemics with, you know, old, old perspective folks, he does the most of the various new perspective adherents to, um, to, to, to incorporate the anthropological arguments um, and that there's a problem actually with humanity that works as a law can't solve. He does, he does the most to incorporate that in, into his own argumentation and his reason of Paul. And, and the logic is very, very close to what you find within these early sources too. And so I think he, you know, that would be, a, that would be a point of, of commonality. I think Dunn would also probably, you know, agree with that, even though he's more well-known for, you know, kind of the Jew Gentile divide thing is being thing, which again, that's a, that's a big deal as well. Um, but that's just not the whole story. Um, so you have that. I think you could also say, if you're saying, Hey, what's, what's points of, you know, commonality. Um, I think you could say with the early sources, um, and the new perspective, I mean, one, one of the places that I find it helpful and you can say this, one, one of the things that everybody would agree on is that when it comes to receiving God's grace, that there is no criteria, there is no, you know, there's no prerequisite, there's no anything in relation to that. And so if you are dealing, you know, with a, you know, if you're dealing with, you know, with a sinner, there's no, there's, there's no sense of, hey, go get your life straight and then, you know, God will go, go and, you know, maybe he'll, he'll you don't have to get some sort of, um, you know, merit currency in advance to trade exactly. in, right? Exactly. And so the, and that's really Luther and Calvin's ultimate concern, right? Is that we would have this, that that's what they're dealing with. It was quite literally for Luther, these transactions of currency where people were getting forgiveness. <laughs> Right. So you can see why they would go and be like, we're really concerned about this notion that you have to have this transaction with God in advance. And it's like, no, that 
That's yeah. you can't do that. You're not good enough anyways. It yeah. doesn't fix anything. Christ yeah. did that for you. All the things we say amen to. And I want to just highlight that because I I want to make sure people don't walk away going, "Boy, anti-Luther and everything like someone like Origen said it should be gospel." Or, Origen was you know, had his own, uh, all these patristic guys, we could probably find some point where we go, ah, yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know about that. But, um, that seems to be the thing that like, there would be some agreement on. We don't, we don't have yeah. to trade in something to get the, the unmerited grace of God. Right. So, yeah. So an, an analogy that I find helpful in, in, in trying to articulate kind of this you know, sociological paradigm, um, that's a, that's a, it's an unnecessarily large phrase. How salvation works is a better way to say. Thanks for doing that. My wife, my wife keeps telling me, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta use less words that are uh, academic. And I'm like, well, no, you know, people can learn them. <laughs> you know, so it's good. Throw it in there and then give the explanation. That's how you do it, right? Yeah, totally. So, um, I, I, one of the one of the places that I find to be really helpful is looking at Matthew 18 and using this as a using it as a framework when Christ goes and tells the parable of the unmerciful servant, if you use that as an analogy for how salvation works, there is that servant has got a, he has a bazillion dollars to pay and he can't, he can't pay a dang thing. And his you know wife and kids are going to be sold. He's going into slavery, all that. And he, he asks, you know, for mercy and he goes and he receives this un like, inconceivable mercy from, from the King. That is like, if you, you know, if you do the translation, uh, of, you know, the actual amount that's there and you adjust for inflation, like that's a large amount that he owes. He's, he has no chance. Of <laughs> I, I ever love that you said all that. of that, all of that. And you said, well, it's a large amount. If you calculate <laughs> yeah. for inflation, it's really, really, <laughs> I was expecting really a specific <laughs> number there, man. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a biblical scholar. I'm not an economist. Um, the, it's, it's really, really big. He's got no chance of paying it back. And he, he receives this unmerited grace. He receives this unmerited forgiveness. And I think at that point, if you're looking at that, you say, that's, that's a spot where new perspective, old perspective, you know, early perspectives, they all say yes to that. Absolutely. That is, that's, that's, we are all sort of that servant in a sense. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that's helped, this would be probably a conversation, which larger conversation another time. Maybe we can get you back on. We can talk about some more soteriology oh, yeah. stuff. Um, I would I would love to unpack some of that. But one of the things I think I found helpful was more of the Eastern Orthodox perspective mm-hmm. on this, the language, and I've used it a few times in this podcast already, the language of union mm-hmm. with Christ and theosis. And um, that's helped me make sense of this. W- what do we make of works or fruits of the spirit, the evidence of God's working in our life. Mm. Um, to me, the, the, the union language is most helpful and the, the, the bridal picture, you know, maybe bri- the, the bridal paradigm, if you will, of, of the scriptures has been really, really helpful because though I've gone, entered into like salvific union with Christ, this is like my wedding ceremony, yeah. um, you know, Protestants have used the term sanctification. The Eastern Orthodox call it theosis. In many ways, there's some some overlap there. Uh, my mind needs the continual renewal 
of, of, of God's work in it. I need to be looking, I need to hear, I need to see, and then if I can see it, he, you know, he, he has given me and empowered me to obey if I do not resist that. And so it's similar to our process of our own marriage where it's like, you know, we have this ceremony, we are one. Uh, I'm not, you know, uh, though we don't, my wife and I, we've been married for almost 13 years, we still don't see eye to eye. Um, I'm not acting all the time in her best interest, mm. right? I'm hopefully growing in that, but I, I don't feel my union is threatened. Yeah, I think one of the things that, um, one thing that's been helpful for me and was a surprise um, coming to this project was um, the recognition that um, when you're looking in the, you know, the early church's understanding of what it is to be justified, um, there is, uh, there's consistently you find it's not just a forensic, Hey, you, you know, you're, you're, you're forgiven. Um, but that it's interpreted as actually being made righteous, that this is, you actually, you know, like, you know, Abraham was, you know, made righteous by faith kind of, kind of stuff. He was, his, 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 his faith led him to actually, you know, being, being righteous. Um, the, you find that all over the, all over the place. You find that, uh, and that was really surprising for me because I had, I had thought, um, that this was an understanding that was sort of a later, you know, medieval mistranslation, um, that, you know, which is, is a, is a narrative that is partially from, from Alistair McGrath, which I got from him. And then I had a chance to, to work with him, um, over in England, which is which fantastic. And it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was great. But part of, I mean, he was one of the, he was one of the original inspirations for the, for this project. And he was, I mean, he had a chance to, to, to meet with him, um, back in, since 2011 when I had, you know, I was first came across all this, all this material and was just trying to figure out, Hey, what should I do? And so he said, yeah, you should probably like, you should probably, you should write on this because I want to know what you, what you, uh, what you find. And, uh, you should, you should probably go to Oxford as well and work with these people. So it all ended up working out, which was, which was incredible. And so then I was able to present this research to him that he had told me to go and do it. And it, um, it, what it does actually in some ways is it goes against, you know, his own work in this area. Um, you know, and that, and you see a day, his book where part of what he says there is that, you know, the idea of justification is factative. So actually being made righteous is a, is a mistranslation that originates with Augustine. And I just kept coming across early sources all over the place that was like, no, like it seems as though this means actually being made righteous. This is what justification means for these early fathers. It's, it's, yeah. Right. It's right. Righteous thing. And I just basically gave all the stuff to him. And I said, I don't really know what to do with these, but like, this is, this is what I'm finding. And he looked at all the sources, like, I think you're right. And so he's, he's, he's like currently revising the book just in, in, you know, in, in light of all this, wow. all this material, but the, 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 the point, the point that's, I think is relevant for the discussion is if you, if you think of, whether or not God's grace is actually making you righteous. Is this, is this actually happening or is it not happening? Um, I think that seeing how justification isn't just an extrinsic thing, but it's something that actually happens in us. It's actually a righteous thing that's there and that God's, God's grace goes and makes possible a 
fulfillment of that, which would be otherwise, I mean, you know, an actual righteous thing that Abraham, righteous as he was, could have only dreamed of. Something that was, he had in part now, we are now offered a righteous thing, which is an actual, I mean, using, you know, 2 Peter 1, 4, an actual, you know, participation in the divine life. That, that God actually wants to share that with us and make us into this. Um, I mean, you're going to, you can easily in, end up in, you know, the Eastern kind of language of that, uh, which is all, I mean, that's all, I mean, you find that all over the place as well, because of course, for them, they understand justification as just being made righteous as, as well. And so you can see where, where they, where they get that. I find that to be, to be helpful and to say like, Hey, it's not like, Hey, did I do this thing? Did I not do this thing? Did I do enough stuff yet? Like, have I done enough? Because you can end up, you can end up back in, um, I mean, you can, you can almost end up back in, uh, the sort of, the sort of paradigm that Luther was trying to break out of. Um, and even if you're following him, sometimes you can end up in a place where you somehow end up back there again. Or even we take it further back, you're back in the paradigm that, you know, the, you know, what the new, new Testament church called Judaizers, right? I mean, it's the same, it's the same thing. It's like, here are the markers, here are the actions, conceptually it's not a you know we're not telling people here's a physical thing you have to do to your body as a marker of it but yeah yeah absolutely you can you can end up back in in those those kinds of things and so i think i mean again um it's probably you're probably cheating as a good new testament scholar if you you just appeal to c.s lewis repeatedly Um, but i think that the way that he i think the way that he he articulates you know all is is really is really really helpful and i think uh, you know is it is a is a faithful representation of what the you know the biblical witness is you know theologically Mm -hmm. and so I mean, just from an ecumenical standpoint, I just kind of always point to point to Lewis and say, "Hey, let's just go, go with yeah. this guy." You know, yeah. he knows what's going on. Well, I'd love to. I'd love to talk some more at some point about some other implications for soteriology that comes out of second century, first second century early church patristic understandings of the scriptures. I, I'd like to. I'd like to con- conclude maybe with one more question, and this might be asking you to give. I know you're not necessarily right now a vocational pastor, but to give mm. almost some pastoral advice to people that are are, are, are wrestling with um, these d- ideas in Scripture, not just this specifically, but perhaps, uh, you know, a significant reason why, or one of the primary reasons why I created this podcast was it, it actually came out of, um, you know, for years I had taught at the high school level Mm. Uh, biblical studies and theology uh, classes. And then um, I, I'd still for years get together with students that had graduated and they get in their college early adult years. And it kind of moved out of that that bubble where everyone thinks the same. And now they're seeing their ideology brush up against other ideologies, which causes them to re-examine, right? Yeah. And they're going, how do I properly re-examine this. What's the method for it? Uh, I want to ask you a question, you know, be, take Luther, Luther's attitude, which, again, Luther made many marvelous contributions. This isn't a polemic against him. But take mm-hmm. that attitude that we talked about earlier, which was essentially, no matter what anybody else tells you before this, my perspective is right. Mm-hmm. Um, that can so frequently be the experience uh, people have when they're presented with a new way of reading mm. scripture, or at least it's new to them. Mm. 
What sort of encouragement would you give to people on the the value of studying church history as a part of their wider pursuit of truth? Yeah, gosh, that's a fantastic question. Um, I think I think one way to look at it is to ask yourself the question: When Christ says that you know I will be with you to the end of the age, is that something that you believe? In the sense that, is that something that you really think to be true and that your own life goes and bears witness that to that you actually, you actually do think it's true so that God, by his spirit, has, from the time of Christ's life up to our present day, has been leading and moving and guiding the church in his wisdom um, even with all of the manifold messiness that might accompany that, that there is still with that, there's still, there's still Christ, Christ's presence, uh, kind of the whole, the whole way through. Um, if you, if you do believe that, if you, if you believe what he says there, then I think it, I think, I think that it enjoins us to go and actually engage with that history um, that's just beyond our own immediate context and kind of what us and our friends think and say, God has been maturing Christians throughout, you know, this is where we're coming at was 20 centuries, something like that. He's been, this, this has happened for, for, for a while here. And I will do well if this is true. I will do well to go. And to benefit from the fruit of what God has grown on the earth here, I'll, I'll benefit from, you know, allowing myself to, to be humble and just receive from, from these different sources and different eras. And, and, you know, just recognizing that taking something from one bit can help me to go and to see my own context in a, in a clearer way. It's kind of like the, the analogy of you only really know your hometown when you have left your hometown. You only really know the things that are distinctive about the particular place that you are, both positively and negatively, when you have gone other places and, and been around. And then once you you see all those all the rest of there, you come back and you're like, oh, okay, I sort of know this place for the first time right now. Um, if you both want to know, you know, other areas you know, of, of the faith and other sort of branches that are happens to me. But also if you want to know your, yourself, if you want to know your own situatedness and what is distinctively, you know, you know, positive about, you know, where, you know, where, where you are, what you believe, the best way you can do that is by engaging with the faith and with, with, you know, engaging with believers throughout the centuries. For myself, I, you know, I find that, you know, the early, the early church and this, the, you know, the church of the martyrs is there to be particularly, particularly valuable, but it, I don't think that one necessarily has to only draw from, you know, from that, that period. I just think it's, it's a, it's a great, a great, a great spot. And I think that the, the 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 counsel that Lewis gives, I think this is, I want to say this is his introduction to Athanasius on the incarnation that he wrote, where he just basically says, you need to have a rule. We're only allowed to read a, a book that's written in your own generation, in your own era. Uh, you, you have to switch off between doing that and reading an old book. Mm. Um, because if you do that, then you will have a sense of what's actually distinctive about your own time and place. You'll actually, you actually, you actually get that. Um, and if not, you'll never will. You'll just have, you'll just have this nearsightedness where you can never actually have any kind of deep, 
deep vision. You won't actually know what's distinctive about your own period. And as far as being able to, you know, to prophetically critique your own, your own, you know, period, you won't be able to do that. So, cause you don't have a framework for what's actually characteristic about your time and age vis-a-vis the rest of, you know, the rest of history. And so I think as far as, you know, Hey, how do you actually go and how do you actually go and do that? I think Lewis's rule is great. Read, you know, after the next new book that you, that you finish, go and read an old book, read, read on the incarnation, read, read whatever, read whatever happens to be from whatever period. Again, whether it's, it's from the reformation period or happens to be, um, I think, I think making sure that we are consistently being informed by God's wisdom that he himself has granted throughout the ages. will it'll help us, I think, to be able to be of greater service in our own context. And it'll just also make us happier people. Wow. wow. <laughs> At the end of the day, it just, I mean, when you spend, when you spend time around a saint, you are a happier person and you want to be a saint even more, I think. And so when we allow ourselves to do that, I mean, we're, yeah, we're more useful, you know, where all those things are good, but we're, I mean, we're the greatest beneficiaries. So that's great advice. Great practical advice for everybody. Uh, and most of that stuff, most of that stuff from the patristic era. <laughs> that's not. <laughs> State once again, there's no, uh, yeah. Nothing new no, under the sun, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and most of that, most of your, uh, especially your patristic stuff, church history stuff, early church history stuff is, is free public domain stuff out there too. So that's another thing if for Ernest, earnest uh, pilgrims on this journey who uh, don't have a huge bankroll for buying a bunch of books, you can go to some place like, um, what is it, the, the, the Christian Ethereal Library? What, that's, that's one of the websites that has essentially everything, I mean, almost everything that you could grab, Athanasius, any of these things we've talked about from Justin Martyr to Irenaeus to Jerome to Augustine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That CCL is, is, is great. Um, New Advent is great. There's a bunch of great ones that have all kinds of free stuff. And so um, if you don't have tons of money, that just means you can just give up buying new books and just do the old ones. Do all the old ones. Yeah, that's a good place to start. That are free. Well, Matthew, I'm so thankful that you were able to carve out some time. Uh, hopefully this conversation is beneficial to people. And with all of these conversations, anything that happens in this podcast, guys, we're having dialogue here. Uh, you know, even last week's episode with Preston Sprinkle, he he invited people to have a difference of opinion. And so, you know, if you guys uh, land someplace differently than where Matthew is landing on the subject, I'm sure, I don't want to speak on your behalf, Matthew, but I, it seems like you're the kind of guy that welcomes that and would love engagement and to have dialogue about it. So, um, yeah, guys, feel free to reach out. The dialogue is so helpful. Even when there's a, a collision of ideas, when it's done with charity, we learn something from each other and we grow in the process. Even just think about you. I mean, you you presented something to Alistair McGrath, who might might change his mind on what he puts into a book. That's crazy. That's awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Matthew. Yeah, thank you, Paul. I appreciate it. Well, hey, I hope everyone enjoyed that conversation. And the purpose of having these sorts of conversations is to be exposed to different ideas so that we can learn in this free exchange of ideas. So if you have a perspective that differs from Matthew's, 
uh, from what he's outlined in today's conversation. Share that with us. This dialogue and back and forth is really, really good. It's healthy when it's done respectfully and charitably towards each other. This is actually how we learn and how we grow. So with all of our guests and actually, you know, even anything that I present, um, you don't have to agree in order to listen. In fact, I would love again to hear your perspective. If you have a different way of seeing it, if you have a different conclusion that you've come to from your own research, or a different book, different theologian. Share that stuff. That's so good. I want to have dialogue and uh, we can only grow in that process. I also want to invite you, if you're finding this podcast and the content I'm creating on YouTube to be helpful and beneficial to you, I want to invite you to become a patron supporter on Patreon today. You'll find a link to that in the description on this podcast. You'll you'll see that there's tiered rewards if you want to have you know support for particular benefits. Uh, I'd love I'd love to invite you to do that. Even just starting off at a two dollar a month contribution would be a massive support and encouragement to the work I am trying to do. So again, you can check all that stuff out in the links provided in the description to this episode. Thank you guys. Again, leave me your comments, your questions, uh, subscribe, review, all of that. All right, till next time.